0: Welcome to the Precision Medicine Podcast, where experts
1: come to discuss the problems oncologists, reference labs, and payers face as precision medicine grows and consider solutions for advancing the quality of patient-centered cancer care.
0: Hello, I'm Jerome Madison, Vice President at Trapello and one of the hosts of the Precision Medicine Podcast, and today we have Dr. Peter Bich chief physician of the Dallas Surgical Group and executive with TME Breast Cancer Network. He is the lead author on a study just published in the Journal of Clinical Oncology that many are calling potentially game-changing with respect to genetic testing guidelines. And he was just so gracious to come on the podcast and discuss it with us. Dr. Bites, thank you and welcome to the Precision Medicine Podcast. Dr. Jerome, thanks for inviting me. This should be a very interesting podcast, hopefully. Absolutely. I've known you for some time, and I know it's not unusual for surgeons to participate in research, but you're not at an academic institution, yet you have been the lead author on a number of studies, including those published in very prestigious journals like New England Journal, American Journal of Surgery, and of course, recently, the JCO. Tell us about your training and how you developed kind of your unique practice as a board-certified surgical oncologist who does research at this level? Well, thank
1: you for those gracious comments. Really I've been lucky in my career. I began training in general surgery at Parkland Hospital, but in the middle, the chief of surgery called me into his office and after being scared, he said, no, don't worry, I have you a fellowship down at MD Anderson if you would like to take it. So. In the middle of my general surgery residency, I got to spend two years in a immunology lab at MD Anderson. And it was fantastic. It's such a dynamic and interesting environment. I learned tons about immunology. I also learned that I could never do bench basic research. So that was good. And I met some long-lasting friends that are still involved in my life today, including Pat Whitworth, who's also in TME Breast Care Network and his co-authors on many papers, including the most recent paper in JCO, he's the second author. After that, I finished up at Parkland and then spent a year at the John Wayne Cancer Institute in Los Angeles. That was a very heady time in that Dr. Morton, Don Morton, had gone from UCLA to Santa Monica and started the John Wayne Cancer Institute there. His landmark paper in sentinel lymph node biopsy in melanoma patients had just been published the year before so I was able to learn that technique from the master. I was at John Wayne. Dr. Armando Giuliano developed the technique in breast cancer and breast cancer sentinel lymph node biopsy has truly revolutionized breast cancer surgery. I came back to Dallas in 1994, brought the sentinel lymph node technique, began my private practice, but I always had a strong desire to do clinical research. David Cragg. The other breast sentinel lymph node guru at the time came through Dallas and said, I know you trained with Don Morton. I also trained with him. We're going to do this multicenter trial in breast sentinel lymph node, would you like to be involved? And I probably crazily said, yes, not really knowing how much work that was, but we were able to get it through our IRB and, and consent patients. And that paper was really the landmark breast sentinel lymph node multicenter trial published in the New England Journal in 1998. That trial led to a prospective and randomized trial, really a daring trial at the time, looking at sentinel lymph node biopsy in breast cancer patients who had a positive sentinel lymph node, meaning they had a metastasis to their sentinel lymph node and randomizing those patients to either standard of care, which was to take out the rest of the lymph nodes from their axilla or observation of their axilla, These were all breast conservation patients, so they were all going to get radiation. It ends up the radiation actually probably treats the upper part and the rest of the axilla that's not removed from surgery, but at the time that was not particularly clear. And lo and behold, a thousand patients later, a landmark study said if you have a positive central lymph node in breast cancer, you don't have to have a complete axillary dissection, which is really the morbid part of breast cancer surgery. So I was fortunate enough to be on that paper. That was Dr. Armando Giuliano a primary author. That was published in late 2000s. After that, I was a strong participant in the American Society of Breast Surgeons. From that, I got to be the principal investigator on a new technique for breast radiation called accelerated partial breast radiation using a new catheter developed by industry called the mammocyte catheter. We did a registry at the American Society of Breast Surgeons and ended up collecting about almost 1500 patients. A third of the patients that were treated with that technique during the time period of 2002 to 2007 published that and it's really been an incredible benefit to women getting an accelerated, meaning five days of radiation treatment as opposed to six weeks of radiation therapy in their equivalent. So that was a bit of a pivot. The next pivot in my career Apparently, I did have quite a bike for clinical research. We moved into genomic testing, which is part of precision medicine that you're very involved with, I know. And we did a neoadjuvant registry with a company called Agendia, looking at both their prognostic test, which is called MammaPrint, but Even more importantly, their subtyping set of test, which is called Blueprint, and it turns out subtyping is important for breast cancer because not all breast cancer is breast cancer, it's really many kinds of cancers, hundreds, maybe every cancer is unique, hence the precision medicine, but at least splits out into four major categories, which is uh, luminal A, luminal B, basal or triple negative, and the her 2 new group. And in that study where we looked at the neoadjuvant patients and their response rate, we didn't dictate the therapy, but we just recorded what the therapy was. It turns out we actually made two fairly significant discoveries, one of which was that about 20% of ER positive patients, which are classically luminal patients, actually when you look at the genes downstream from the, the estrogen receptor, they're not turned on by estrogen receptors and they're actually a basal type. So, they look like, if you just look at their immunostaining, they look like luminal type that would respond to anti-estrogen therapy, but in fact, they're basal and need to be treated like a basal cancer. That's a pretty big thing. And the other thing was just a complete random bit of luck. During the trial, the standard of care and neoadjuvant treatment of HER2 new positive patients switched from chemotherapy plus Herceptin to chemotherapy with Herceptin plus a new drug called Progetta, which is a, attack the HER2 new receptor in a different way. And as we're tracking the patients in the study, we see that the HER2 new positive patients, if you're estrogen receptor positive and HER2 new, that they really were responding poorly to chemotherapy plus Herceptin as opposed to the estrogen receptor negative patients that were HER2 nu positive. Well, that's an interesting finding, you know, you would expect them to be, you're targeting her too new, and that's really what you seem to be, you know, controlling the cancer with along with chemotherapy. But lo and behold, that was not the case. And we ended up saying early on in the trial before that Progetta was added that, hey, we found this. If you're HER2 new positive but a luminal patient, you're going to be resistant to Herceptin-based chemotherapy. But what we saw was the HER2 positive and ER positive patients started to get more and more complete pathologic response with treatment. And when we went back and looked at the breakpoint, it was exactly when Progetta came in. And so we came up with this theory. If you're HER2 positive and ER positive and luminal, you have to have the dual blockade of HER2 new and Progetta. And so people had been seeing that but didn't know why, and it's actually because of the luminal subtyping. So those are two big features that came out of that
0: trial. That was pretty exciting. Many people may not know this, but the process of tumor profiling in precision medicine actually started with surgeons because the tissue was required to be fresh or flash frozen and needed to be harvested in surgery for gene sequencing. But you were one of those early voices advocating for precision medicine and very often clashed with medical <laughs> oncologists, pathologists. Yes. Where did that passion to challenge them and kind of take this on? I get a lot of that
1: is from, I guess, from Dr. Morton, really. Some of my trained people that I trained with, the passion that they had to care for their cancer patients and to, to fight it tooth and nail. I know Dr. Morton was really instilled, uh, was passionate about precision medicine and actually about the immune system too, which now is blowing up also. And that's where that passion came from. And I I guess, uh, you know, if you can't tell by listening to the first part of this podcast, you know, I'm fairly passionate about things. So often I'm not the most politically correct guy in the world. I challenge things that seem silly and, and don't make sense to me, one of which is always to me, has always been population-based treatments, you know. And if it's the best you've got, it's the best you've got. And that's how we developed chemotherapy for breast cancer patients. I mean, these weren't even stratified by something as simple as estrogen receptors. But back when chemotherapy started, we just put a 500 or 1,000 or 2,000 patients in this arm of the trial and 2,000 in this arm of the trial and gave one chemotherapy and didn't give placebos to the other and followed them. And lo and behold, in the population-based study, they did slightly better if you gave them chemotherapy. And that's great. But all of a sudden, now you're treating a lot of people to help a few. And so precision medicine, I think, does several things. It treats the people that need to be treated with treatments that should be effective for them. But it also says, okay, don't give them that treatment because that's not going to work on them or they don't need that treatment. You know, That is giving the treatment that's needed when it's needed, targeted for that patient's cancer. Ultimately, it's going to be that patient's genetic milieu also. That should be our aim. And that's, I mean, I think that's, that's why you're on this podcast, right? And, and that's why you do what you do. And you've done it for 20 plus years that I've known you. That's always made common sense to me. The science has not always been perfect. It's certainly gotten better and better. And as, uh, as we've been able to do things like genetic sequencing way better, the really intense amount of money that was put into cancer biology in the 90s Really started paying off in the 2000s when you started getting targeted drugs like trastuzumab or Herceptin for HER2 new tumors, where you started getting additional treatments for estrogen receptor positive tumors. You know, all of that morphed into things like ALK mutations in lung cancer, having a very targeted treatment. For those patients, it's been miraculous. The more and more we look at things precisely, the more we find out and the better we get. Not perfect yet, but it's certainly gotten better. Just in my 25-year career, survivals in, in breast cancer have probably at least gone up by 50%, maybe more. In melanoma, there's another classic example of precision medicine is VRAF mutation testing in melanoma. That was not an evolution, that was a revolution. Half of melanoma patients carry a BRAF mutation that can be targeted with a drug, an oral drug. I mean, it has side effects, but not like, you know, systemic chemotherapy, uh, an untargeted chemotherapy has and that revolutionized melanoma and and we've gone on from there with additional targets and then uh, immunotherapy has just blown up and we're really starting to get a handle on some of the cancers that were formerly really melanoma used to be really my first part of my career was depressing because we really once it escaped the skin and the lymph nodes was really didn't have a lot we didn't we weren't very good at treating it and now we're getting better and better so it's about patient care so i guess my passion and my you know, willingness to confront medical oncologists and to work with my pathologists to push things forward really stems from passion for patient care.
0: Well, your voice and your opinion very much helped move this industry forward. In fact, you know, as I think about it today, there are really a great number of medical oncologists that are still trying to wrap their minds around precision medicine as to when it should be used, who they should order from. And that's today, and that's not a, a criticism, it, it just It just is, right? Change is hard. Yeah, absolutely. But I remember a few years ago, and this was a few years ago when you were the president of the American Society of Breast Surgeons. And NGS, as you know, had just launched as a commercial technology. Tumor profiling was, it was certainly getting more buzz. It was not mainstream at all. But your presidential address was titled Future Shot. And at the end of that speech, you told this audience of somewhere around 3,000 breast surgeons that if you don't start learning you know, cancer genomics. If you don't start getting involved in precision medicine, they're going to spend the rest of their career taking out gallbladders. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, what have you seen? I mean, and this was a little while yeah. ago to surgeons, yeah. and where many medical oncologists had not really taken up that mantle of leadership in, in imploring precision medicine routinely. How have you seen the uptake of interest by surgeons that you've spoken to, and also medocs change since that time?
1: So that really got their attention. At least they started paying attention after I uh, told them they, because nobody, they don't like taking out gallbladders. They like, because those can't happen in the middle of the night. They like cooperating during the day and seeing patients in the office. So that certainly got their attention and they listened at least. And so one of the things about surgeons is we always advocate, well, I guess all physicians do, but we strongly advocate for patient care and are not afraid to push the field forward. Staging system in breast cancer was started by surgeons estrogen receptor was discovered and and treatment of the estrogen receptor positive patients was started and won a Nobel Prize for a surgeon. So surgeons have always been interested in total care of patients and uh, always in their best interest and to to push the field forward. And so I think surgeons were not entrenched in population-based treatments like medical oncologists are. You know, one big 3000 patient study with you tweak chemotherapy a little bit that's fine, but but surgeons didn't care much about that. But if you come in and say, "Okay, this patient has HER2 new on their cell surface," you better be treating that with targeted therapy. You know, they get that immediately. Maybe I am just a simple creature, <laughs> and so the simple things sound easier for me. But I think surgeons in general really adopted things that made common sense. The first one really made a big difference for patients was Oncotype DX and Mammoprint, those two things. So you could sort out the, because pa- there was a paper, a famous paper, NSABP B20, study B20, that said we cannot find a group of breast cancer patients that don't benefit from chemotherapy well, that just turned the spigots on for everybody to get chemotherapy. Well, we weren't seeing that. We, I mean, we're on the front lines with the medical oncologists, and we believe that there are tons of patients that don't benefit, and they get all the harms from it without any of the benefits. So, lo and behold, both Oncotype DX from Genomic Health and, and Mammoprint from Agendia said, no, no, we can sort this out. And so, sure enough, they were able to independently develop tests that could sort out people that would benefit from chemotherapy, which is great, but more importantly, patients that were not going to be benefited in any way from chemotherapy. They just needed probably hormonal therapy. And so those two tests were made complete common sense to surgeons. And even though both those companies started going to the medical oncologist first, because that's who you know, gives chemo, systemic chemotherapy. They really got traction once they started talking to surgeons. And so we used to teach courses for both of those companies where where we were teaching, you know, mostly surgeons in the audience to order the test to then when the patient went for a, a consult with a medical oncologist, they'd have it already in their hands and say, well, You say I need chemotherapy, but it looks like my score says I don't need chemotherapy. What do you think about that? And so that was a bit of a upsetting to some medical oncologists because they felt like they were threatened. But I think it got their attention too, and it brought them around ultimately. And and ultimately, everybody wants what's best for the patients, and so they came around on it eventually. And so that whole area of genomics has been really a blessing for patients, and really adopted by surgeons first, and then medical oncologists really coming around. And to be honest with you, quite frankly, from the pathologists too, because they would bring it up at tumor boards or a breast conference and ask about it and so the pathologists, even though they may not directly touch patients or some do but rarely they saw the benefit in it also and you know nobody wants friends and family to be getting treatments that aren't going to help them and so they saw the benefits of it too so we all got finally got on the same page with all that it's been great that presidential lecture has been i think very well received and even it's coming up on five years now I went back and listened to it again uh, a couple months ago, and it, it still, most of it still holds up. It was a bit audacious at the time, but it, it still holds up, I think.
0: Well, even since then, so you've done research for quite a while, and you mentioned some of your co-investigators on the paper that you've worked with, but now you're a part of TME Breast Care Network. Tell us a little bit about that group and the work that you do.
1: Yeah, so TME came up about maybe five years ago when Pat Whitworth and Mark Gittleman and Rakesh Patel and I, who had been teaching courses for industry for many, many years, over 10 years together, decided, you know, I think let's come up with some different way. I don't want to be attached to one company. I want to bring up breast care. I want to raise the level of breast care in this entire country. And how can we do that? And actually, Pat came up with the idea, you know, it's great for academics, to stand up at the podium and pontificate, but really, what we need to do is get down in the trenches with the people in the communities where most care is delivered, and raise the community leaders. Tell them about what's the latest cutting-edge stuff. The community leaders will bring them in to a meeting, and then they'll go back and disseminate it in their communities. And when that happens, when the community leader comes back in the community, the other surgeons see what she or he is doing. They raise their standards too, and so that was the concept. And we've done seminars in the fall summits we call them in the fall where we fly people in and it happens to be in vegas because everybody likes going to vegas at a nice hotel and we do a day or day and a half of soup to nuts from risk assessment and diagnosis to uh, survivorship issues, and uh, really what the state of the art is, and, and uh, industry's been very helpful in supporting us in this mission, and we've now held, uh, nine of them was last November, we used to hold them twice a year, now we're just once a year, and then we developed the Breast Care Network, which is basically the group of everybody that's come to a summit. These are community leaders, some academic leaders also, about uh, 10 to 12% of our participants are academics that are sort of real clinically oriented. And that's the breast care network now we have about 250 physicians in that we have a website we have a case-based forum uh, where people can openly discuss cases that are complicated so you know these are high-end physicians to begin with and if they have a complicated case you can imagine right so we do that we hold webinars and industry will come to us as they're developing a new product say uh, we need an ad board we want to get some feedback on a new localization device in breast cancer after a biopsy. And that can start with, how does it feel? Which grip do you like? What's the display do you like? We've had genomics companies come to us and say, what's really important on the report? Because if you can't communicate with your report to the physician simply, you know, and understandably, then it's hard to adopt your test because I can't understand it. So they ask us simple things like that. So we do ad boards for them, advisory boards with uh, physicians. So it's been a great, fascinating process with Targeted Medical Education and Breast Care Network, and we've got more things to come. One of the things we learned along the way was once something got approved that they really needed follow-up on their test or their product. And so we developed TME research. And that's one of the main things I do in TME is the research. TME research is what developed the network that did the universal breast cancer registry that just got published. So we have a foundation now where we're doing our first oncoplastic course with CME via the TME foundation. So we can offer CME credits for everybody. So we're not trying to be the American Society of breast surgeons, we'll never be that, we we have no, that's not our charge, but we do want to raise breast care in this country. We are like-minded with the ASBS. we're just taking a little different tact on it. So thank you for asking about that though, appreciate that.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And many of our listeners are innovators in the precision medicine space. How can they get in touch, and and of course, physicians as well, how can they get in touch if they want to learn more about TME or find how they can attend one of your conferences?
1: Yeah, so two things. You can go to our website, breastcarenetwork.com. We have all our contact information there. That's www.breastcarenetwork.com. Or you can email me. It's my last name, which is Bich B. E-I-T-S-C-H at gmail.com. And I'd be happy to hook you up. We really are always looking for new people to come to our Summit. We love working with new industry partners. We really only work with people that, are, that we think are innovative and cutting edge. So, you know, if you make it to the Summit as an industry, it may only be 40 people there, but it's the right 40 people. You've been to our Summits. They're they're like no meeting you've ever been to. They're very interesting and fun, and, and we serve mimosas in the morning. <laughs> so... <laughs>
0: Many thanks to Dr. Peter Beich and the Targeted Medical Education Breast Cancer Network for sharing the work they're doing to move breast cancer care forward. We also want to encourage you to listen to part one of Dr. Beich's interview, which was titled Our Current Genetic Testing Guidelines Outdated, where we dive into the study and outcomes of the JCO paper. Of course, we want to thank you and all of our listeners for joining us today. We hope you'll tune in for the next episode of the Precision Medicine Podcast. And don't forget, you can download full transcripts today at precisionmedicinepodcast.com. If you enjoyed this podcast, you probably know someone else who would, so please tell them. They'll thank you, and so will we.